Hey guys, and welcome to the Family Business Indaba podcast. We are the voice of African family business, promoting generational wealth and generational legacies. And my name is Susan Tendi. And I am Nika Amani. And we're going to be taking you through the journey of African family business. everyone and welcome to this last session of African Women and Family Business and in this session we have um, a panel discussion that's going to be led by Nadine Kamalanda and we look forward to enjoying the session so I'm just going to hand it over to Nadine to, um, to kick off the session. Thank you Nadine. Thank you, Titi. Thank you very much for the invitation and for making that panel um, happen. So uh, my name is Nadine. Um, I'm a professor of family business at uh, WHO, in, that's a business school in, in Germany. And I'm very happy that uh, today we can talk about the role of women in uh, family businesses in Africa and that we have um, three experts in our panel that are, are real experts on um, women in uh, businesses, uh, all of them having um, extensive uh, knowledge about founding also their own firms and also about financial topics and investing. So um, I will just briefly um, uh, refer to each of them and then maybe each of you can provide um, a little bit more information on um, who you are and how you actually uh, see the topic of women in family businesses. So I'm very happy that we have Sheila here. Sheila is a partner at NISC Capital and um, they're doing um, corporate finance and transaction advisory and um, are very active in that sector. Second, uh, we also have Titi here. So Titi is, a found, is the founder and the chief investment officer of Sankore, which is also um, an investment firm. And um, she has a lot of um, um, experience with finance from a very young age on and really a passion for that topic. And um, last but not least, I think um, Asfane is, has also joined us, right? Yes, I see you now. Yes, so as, good. Hi. Asfane is the co-founder and the CEO of Alter Sampro Capital, which is a private equity firm. And she has um, lots of um, experience in the private equity sector and um, has worked in many different um, companies there. And what makes all our panelists very special is that not only they have this founding experience, but they have also um, gained a lot of experience in other firms. They have been sitting on various sports of companies and they're also characterized by a really excellent education. So having um, MBAs from Harvard, for instance, or graduation from, um, from Wharton School. So really kind of the experience that we need to bring um, women forward. So I, I would like first would like to hand over to Sheila to say a little bit more about yourself and maybe already sharing some thoughts with us on the topic of um, uh, um, African uh, family business and the role of women there. Before, I just want to actually encourage everybody to make use of the chat. So, of course, we have some prepared questions and um, there's a lot about to say about that topic, but I would also like to encourage everybody of you to all, uh, put your um, uh, questions in the chat and then we can integrate them in our conversation. So now, Sheila, the stage is yours. 
Thank you. Uh, hello, everyone. I'm sure it's different time zones. So um, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for giving me this opportunity, AFF. Uh, my name is Sheila Charisima. I'm a partner at Nest Capital, which is a boutique um, corporate finance and transaction advisory firm, as Nadine mentioned. We are based in East Africa and we cover the East African markets. So we raise capital in Kenya, Uganda, Rwanda, Tanzania, and DRC. Uh, during our five-year lifetime, we've raised in excess of a billion dollars into businesses in this region. And a lot of them tend to be family-owned firms, um, transitioning from one generation to another or expanding in different phases. Um, I also am part of another business that's uh, a family-owned business where I am a shareholder, and that's managing about uh, $50 million in assets under management on the real estate side. So when it comes to, I think, women in family-owned firms, uh, I think this is this topic is very, um, I guess, important because <laughs> in this context, unfortunately, there's a, a lot of underrepresentation for, for various reasons. And if I just look at the portfolio of businesses we've worked with over the, the five-year timeframe, it's been um, only a handful of women, if I should say. And particularly, I think uh, um, there's a lot of cultural issues that we'll probably get into. Um, there's a lot of, of course, gender role perception. Um, and I think there's just also, you know, some, the, the, the I think the view around who an heir is to, to a family estate um, and what that person represents, I think is another challenge we work with. But I think, um, you know, there is hope uh, with, with many family businesses having their children educated, especially out of their countries and being exposed to women taking on more leadership roles just generally and globally. I think there is there's definitely hope. So I'll stop there for now. Back to you, Nadine. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Sheila. So uh, Titi, could you take over, please? Apologies. Yeah, so um, my name is Titi Odunfa Adelie. I am the founder and CEO of Sankara Investments, which is uh, um, an investment platform focused on the wealth building needs of um, families and corporates as well, um, usually corporates that are managed by uh, families. Um, we also run a multifamily office, which is one of the few uh, multifamily offices in Nigeria. And um, through that and through our uh, core platform, we engage with uh, about 150 families in Nigeria um, and um, at, at varying stages of wealth um, from just sort of emerging wealth all the way to, you know, what we call legacy wealth, which is, you know, a couple of generations and so on and so forth. Um, as a firm, you know, we're quite excited um, about this topic. Uh, we have a proposition called Wealth for Women, where we just sort of look at the particular issues of women in both in family businesses, but also just in building wealth generally. Um, so definitely very excited to have this conversation with you guys today. Thank you very much. So, Afsana, please. Great. Well, well, thank you so much. And it's such a pleasure to be part of such an esteemed panel of such accomplished women. Um, my name is Afsane Jeda. I am the co-founder and managing partner of a business called Alta Semper Capital, um, which I founded alongside two other sort of very large, well-known U.S. families in 2015. One is the Estee Lauder family. So the world's largest prestige cosmetics company and the family office of Richard Parsons, who is probably one of the more well-known African-American CEOs. 
And um, prior to that, I have sort of 15 years of private equity experience, largely in the consumer healthcare and technology sectors. Um, at Alta Semper, we've invested roughly $150 million in the last four years into the healthcare sector in Africa. Um, we generally do deals between 30 and $60 million, although we have one very, very small investment in Nigeria, which was, which was kind of a tiny investment, but obviously one about which we're, we are very passionate and, and prepared to support sort of going forward. Um, I think on the, on the issue of family-run firms, um, it, it, I think it is extremely relevant, particularly in the last couple of years. I think you have seen that women, women-led businesses, women-led countries have fared very well. Um, I think women, in my personal opinion, tend to be um, tend to be great at the reiterating game. So women tend to be more patient. They tend to take a more collaborative approach to negotiation. I think they're particularly well suited to invest in emerging markets where things are not necessarily straightforward and much more based on relationships. Um, and I think fostering women to encourage them to found businesses, run businesses, succeed in businesses, specifically family-run businesses is very much embedded in culture. So very luckily, um, my shareholders are you know, big feminists. So the Estee Lauder family, you know, Esther Lauder was a very prominent woman and um, she had two sons and Ronald Lauder, who's our main shareholder, has two daughters who are very involved in the Estee Lauder business. And when they were looking for a partner um, to invest um, in Africa with, it was very important for them to actually ideally partner with a, with a woman. Um, similarly, when Dick Parsons ran Time Warner Group um, and even at the Rockefeller Foundation, a big focus of his time there was supporting women, especially younger women who had challenges around sort of managing a family and managing a career. So having supportive shareholders, having supportive patriarchs, you know, for lack of a better word, I think is really, really important in setting the stage. Um, and also I, I tend to find that women thrive more in businesses that are mission-led and and um, mission-driven. I think, not to stereotype, but in my experience in the last 20 years working with incredible female colleagues, they tend to be less motivated simply by financials and, and more by culture, mission, impact that their businesses are having. So as businesses think about how to, how to progress and how to succession plan, building in sort of mission and I know one of the topics is ESG I feel like that's an incredible way to motivate and retain women in a business other than simply sort of financial metrics so thank you very much for those perspectives so I mean summarizing what you have said I think um, on the one side is as far as Afsan as you just said there is um, a very good reason that even more women should run family businesses because of their um way to do business and their mission and their negotiation style and relationship stakeholder oriented focus. On the other hand, as uh, Shayla said in the beginning, there are also many different obstacles like cultural, like gender roles and so on and so on. And basically this is the situation that we, we see all around the world and that we have see, been seeing for, um, for, for, for many decades now. So I last year, or the year before I wrote a, a short report on um, what we know from literature about women in, uh, in African family businesses. And when doing so, I realized that, I mean, all around the world, we have those kind of barriers and we all basically see now that more needs to be done and we somehow need to actually um, foster more women taking responsible roles in family businesses. Before we now 
dig a little bit deeper into those root causes and what we could do against it. Um, I would like to, to ask you how you saw the last month or the last year, because there is this very kind of diverging um, discussion that on the one side, people say that the pandemic has really helped women in business thrive because of the home office and the increased flexibility and because of their strength, obviously. However, on the other side, other people say that um, the kind of dual um, the, 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 um, um, obligations of household and kids and lockdown and, 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 and career actually made it very difficult for women. So my question to you is, how did you experience the last month? Um, did you see that um, the position of female leaders has improved through the pandemic? And so or did, we, did we learn anything during the pandemic um, regarding um, uh, female leaders? So what did you take from those last months? Any of you who wants to start have already some thoughts on that question. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to start. I have yeah. many very emotionally loaded thoughts about this. So I think... Um, I, I think it has been a divergent view. I'm happy to share my, my personal view and, the, and that of, of you know, close colleagues. So I have two very small children. I have a three-year-old and a six-year-old and I actually found it all to temper when my, my oldest daughter was, was nine months old. So, um, you know, I think one of, one of the things I have, have found in the pandemic is um, I, I think net-net it has been a positive for women because especially cor corporate women, because generally in, in, in the financial field, as an example, in the private equity space, I think globally only 10% of partners are women. And there tends to be a model where you see your colleagues who are partners, they tend to be older than the women in the, in the industry. They tend to have women who have wives who have less intense careers. And so the men can kind of work a very traditional eight to eight, can travel at the you know turn of a dime. And, and then women generally don't have that setup. They generally come from two working households. Um, and, and so I think in one sense, um, I found it to be a bit liberating that I don't have to go into an office. I mean, I, I don't necessarily report into anyone, but I do have shareholders who, historically maybe would have assumed I would have worked more normal hours in my Mayfair office sort of being there at a particular time. Um, I think it's, you know, given me the flexibility to spend a little bit more time with my children. Um, I do happen to be very lucky that I have a husband who, who is, you know, works at a bank and actually runs his trading desk sort of in the office next door at the moment, but takes, you know, more as sort of a balanced role in childcare. I think what has, um, yeah, I've read a lot of articles and there was a great article, I think, in The Economist recently that this, if there's a global recession, it's going to be a bit of a pink recession, whereas women tend to have taken more of the burden of homeschooling. Um, you know, in the UK for the last 12 months, six of it has been homeschool. And I know for a fact I did not miss out on a bright career as a primary teacher because I'm terrible at it, right? Um, my children start crying when I try and homeschool them. But so I think in that sense, there are these gender and cultural norms where if there is homeschooling, more often than not, I've found from my colleagues in the financial space that it is assumed the women will do the homeschooling. You know, if your cleaner can't come because of COVID, it's assumed that the women will do the housework. And so that I think has held women back. But I think net net, it's been a positive that there's been a shift 
at least in my view, of a focus from FaceTime and a traditional way of working towards creativity, productivity, um, results-based work, which I think should should um, favor women who in general might need a more flexible way of working. And I think I, I do personally believe that is something that is here to stay. Thank you. So Shayla and Titi, do you agree? Yeah, yeah um, I, I'd like to add to that. I, I agree. I generally agree, but um, maybe just a bit of nuance. I think that I do agree with Afsani that, you know, um, probably women at a certain level have found um, the pandemic to be helpful to their careers. Because again, as she's saying, you know, you know, more flexibility, you get to spend, you can work from home, less focus on FaceTime and all of that. That's actually something that I think will be, um, as she said, you know, a long-term trend that will be beneficial for women in the long run. But I do think even from my experience and just sort of what um, I think a lot of people in the world have experienced, we would probably probably uh, say that women as a whole have actually had a hard time with this pandemic because of the type of careers that women generally, you know, pick. Um, so, we have to be aware that there are not that many women leaders. If you, I mean, remember the number that she said as well with regards to number of women directors and so on and so forth. So if you look at the fact that women do cluster in a lot of these roles that have actually um, borne the, the brunt of unemployment, um, then definitely I would actually say that that's probably been a larger negative impact on women from the pandemic. Um, so that's at least the short term reality for most women. Um, so take, for example, uh, the fact that women generally are always thinking around um, flexibility and so on means that we sometimes make career choices that prioritize sort of these um, um, jobs that, you know, are not necessarily the most value adding, right? So when I speak to women, young women, sometimes I tell them, look, you've got to focus on some of these careers that you sometimes think may be uh, the ones that are, you know, just too difficult for you to have a family life. They might may actually be the ones that, you know, in the long run would be, you know, just better for you in your career. So if women pick to be software developers more, right, then. So I think now you're a little bit frozen. So um, maybe Shayla, you can share your opinion. Uh, sure, I think I think reconciling what um, Asani and Titi have sort of alluded to, there's obviously a socioeconomic divide, and um, you know the women who are in corporates. We I think I, I agree with the fact that this um, pandemic, what it has helped is shift the culture where the perception of remote working or flexible work environment is frowned upon, particularly in in certain. Um, very male-dominated fields and also I think fields where FaceTime counts a lot, which finance is one of those fields. So I think the idea, what it has given a chance to is to see that productivity, if you have a good performer, you have a good performer and productivity can still be achieved um, even remotely. However, of course, depending on the, on the dynamics of the pandemic. So for example, you know, some countries here in East Africa, we had a complete shutdown, complete lockdown, which means people who had commuting um, help for, for childcare couldn't, or who had to take their kids to school could not do that, obviously. And so depending on the age of the kids, so I have a two-year-old, so it was very difficult to get a meeting without him pounding on the door at home, right? And, um, and that was, it was interesting that on one hand, um, 
overall for the culture, for corporates, it's, it's better. On the other hand, for um, uh, depending on where you are. So if you think about, obviously this is on, on African family firms. So those firms will tend to be either SMEs who want to become corporates and uh, SMEs are quite, it's quite fragmented in the market. So depending on what SME you are, um, if, if, if as a woman, your income depended on actually commuting somewhere or for your business, um, it actually depended on the economy being open, then you were overall more hurt. So I would almost separate, obviously, um, the corporates and the firms and uh, uh, people from a socioeconomic background that allows them to be in positions of, of influence and power from sort of just um, the other sets of businesses, which would be more in the SME category that on balance, I think this just hurt them. There's no way to see how that has changed um, or, or moved them forward in any way. The the uh, of course, the the brunt of the household chores fell, fell on their shoulders. That's one. Uh, their economic incomes were reduced significantly. And I think one of the other things was uh, just generally having, uh, you know, families with teenage daughters who are at home and now obviously in environments with men and they're not going to school. You know, teenage pregnancy, I think one of the statistics that has come up even in Kenya is the fact that teenage pregnancies have been shooting up. So, um, you know, there's there's... There's a divide depending on what category you're in. I think for 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 larger corporates and for firms, um, like where we sit, overall it, it will be a positive because I think now when somebody says, "I work from home, my child is sick," it won't you know people won't assume that you're taking the day off as long as you're productive. Um, so I think from that perspective, um, I would agree. And I think the, the other perspective is now how do you think about supporting? I think from a policy angle, there's a big question on how these women who are more in the SME sector and in, in categories that are not uh, from higher socioeconomic backgrounds, how can they be supported? Because that's majority again of the economy. So when we're talking about, um, I guess, family owned firms or businesses and thinking about, especially the economies for Africa, I think that's also something to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that actually I'm just reading that chat in parallel and I think what you have just said also resonates very much with uh, the discussion that is going on in the chat right now that we have this huge heterogeneity of family businesses. So we have um, the, the larger ones where probably it is, as you just said, Sheila, it's, it, it, we have new models of working and more flexibility, but we also have the kind of smaller businesses where there might be a need to actually go out and where you might depend also so much on your, your business partners. And I guess that one of the challenges that we have with developing solutions for promoting women into family business is that we somehow need to address um, basically the, the whole spectrum of family businesses, the larger ones and the smaller ones, and also all the different kind of um, sectors. So, but now, now we've talked a lot about the problem and I think um, we, we could spend the entire day on coming up with uh, further problems that women in, uh, in African family businesses or family businesses or even businesses in general have. But um, I would like to, to have uh, the conversation also even more um, um, optimistic and positive, but also more challenging. So let us think a little bit about what could we actually do to, to help the women in, um, in African family business to, to, 
to 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 be to to be empowered and to thrive uh, even after the pandemic. So, what would be your personal ideas and thoughts about how to actually help those women? So, Titi, are you are you with us again? Yes, I am. Okay. Unfortunately, my video is not working. But um, so, um, I mean, with regards to how to help women thrive. Um, one of the things that we do, for example, I mentioned that we run a multifamily office and it's actually one of the areas that we uh, focus on quite a bit. Um, you know, we talked earlier about the fact that, um, you know, continents like Africa and a few other places um, have, you know, cultural context that make uh, women leadership, um, you know, just sort of have particular issues of their own, right? Um, and one of the things that we do with families is just sort of helping them think about succession um, and just sort of um, placing women in the conversation, right? Um, so what we see, for example, is there are actually lots of families who still just sort of you know, just sort of go the traditional route of um, um, prioritizing their sons. Um, but we're already starting to see some change. Um, and it, it's actually something that's very exciting for us. The fact that people are getting open-minded enough to prioritize results, right? Um, so uh, one of the things that we do is we actually just make sure we stand as just sort of um, um, a voice of reason um, to just sort of ensure that there's balance. Um, again, we can't dictate anything, but we often do uh, help people be aware of other voices. So mm -hmm. we've worked with families, for example, where let's say there are a lot of sons who control the assets. We kind of encourage them to maybe, even if they don't want to include um, either the wives or even their one or or two sisters on the governing council, we say, hey, what about thinking about putting um, together a, an advisory council that's, that gives decisions to the governing council? We've seen situations in which um, the governing council actually gets the advice from the advisory council and realizes, oh my goodness, this is better quality than what we came with. Maybe we need to combine and just, and we've actually seen situations like that. Um, so I do think that, um, it's about changing minds uh, through, through actual demonstration. It's about taking small steps. Um, we do see, and as I said, we're lucky enough that we have quite some families that are very open-minded and they say to us, look, um, the, the one child that I know can handle this is my daughter. And she's not even the first, she's like the third. We've seen that happen in many situations, but we're also aware that that's not always the case. Um, but we also even fight for the other kids to be involved, um, whether they're women or not. Um, but especially for the women, because it's quite typical that they will be um, just sort of disregarded. So what we do is we say, look, um, let's at least get their voice in, in some way. And that way, you know, as long as the opportunity is created for women to shine, you actually find that the, the specific uh, advantages that we have with regards to decision-making do actually show. Um, it's, it's sometimes controversial to talk about biology and so on. But the reason I think women run away from using biology um, is because it's been used against us so much. Um, but when we look at the information, when we look at the science, and I think women should do this more, we should look at the science. There's actually science out there that says testosterone is not that great for complex decision-making. Imagine, why don't we hear that as women, right? Um, I'm in the investment field and 
most women have never heard about the fact that women investors often outperform male investors. Uh, Kathy Wood is, is the star of the decade um, with her innovation fund, ARK Invest, which I'm sure many of you guys have heard about. And she was doing something that, you know, uh, a 60 year old woman is the one who is the kind of the face of innovation on Wall Street, right? And it's, it's um, everyone seems to think it's unexpected, but if you look at the data, the data actually says that women are very, very good, or at least have a slight advantage when it comes to complex decision-making. One of the key takeaways that we let families know and be aware of is be aware that it's not necessarily the skill set that have, helps you build wealth that helps you keep that wealth and retain it, right? Mm -hmm. So it's important for you to think differently. Maybe sure your business was built through in a difficult time where you know you you lived in a very dangerous country and it required you dealing with rough generals, but that's not the case anymore. Now you have to think of innovation. You have to think of quite a lot of things, right? You have to think of growth. You have to think of uh, maintaining the family wealth and women do have an edge in there and we do actually show the information and data. So um, just so not to take up too much time, I think that's the, the summary is that it's very important to give that information to the families so that they just kind of start to, you know, leg in into this idea of being um, inclusive. Um, so I, I think that's kind of what we believe, just sort of um, positioning women to, to have a voice. Yeah. And I mean, this keeping wealth instead of only generating wealth, I mean, this is also very much at the heart of a family business, because you can only be a successful family business over generations if you manage to not lose your money directly again after foundation. But before I want to hand over to the others, I still have a follow up question because I found it uh, so intriguing how you said you talked about the awareness problem, but also the potential lacking of willingness to change something. So since you've obviously taught, talked to many family businesses, um, what would you say, what is kind of the bigger problem? Is the bigger problem that we need to better educate family businesses because they really lack awareness? Or is it more the kind of willingness problem that they kind of know about um, the values of women, but they just don't want to do that or they just don't want to give them the full power. Um, should I, should I? Oh, okay. Sorry. That's yeah. to me. Um, so here's the thing. One of the things that I have learned about, uh, especially wealth builders, I really do think the wealth builders are a, a bit more pragmatic than traditional. They may sometimes actually just, you know, maybe they live in a cultural context that says they should do A, but they're actually often very willing to do B if you show them evidence, right? So to be honest, um, I actually think it's awareness more than anything else, right? Mm -hmm. um, you have to think about the fact that for someone to have built great wealth, they kind of have to be a bit open-minded. They have to be willing to experiment, willing to, to change. Um, so I find that many of them just sometimes assume that maybe their daughter is not interested or assume, but they're not, it's, they're not as tied to the cultural norms as probably other people who haven't built great wealth. So that's why being in a position where you can show them information, being in a position where 
the children themselves, especially the women, can demonstrate their ability um, can actually be very um, be very important to lead to change, right? Mm. Um, so to be honest, we found that our job is just to be a facilitator. Um, you find generally that there's a gulf between uh, generations with regards to, you know, the wealth creating generation and then the next gen. Um, and, you know, uh, that's very typical in families anyway. And it's very typical for the wealth creator to sometimes underestimate the abilities of the next gen anyway, whether male or female, that's very typical. Um, it is our job when we come in to just sort of work with both sides and try to get them to come to a certain middle ground. And it's also helping them see things that they may not see just because they're the parents and so on and so forth. So we definitely do try to come in from a very um, neutral position. Um, there are some kids, there are some women who are in the next gen who want to be involved, some not so much. Um, but for the ones who do show um, the skill set, it's very important that they have a path towards demonstrating their ability. Um, and we find that, you know, the short answer is people change their minds. Um, they want to retain their wealth and their legacy much more than they care about culture. At least mm -hmm. that's what we find for most, most wealth creators. So I do think that, you know, changing their mind is really based on the willingness of the, the daughter or the other female family member to actually demonstrate their capability. That's actually yeah. a very encouraging observation because it's, it, it has a very optimistic look in the future. And um, as a professor, I also, of course, um, believe very much in the evidence of um, um, uh, or in the, in, the, um, yeah, in, the in the value of evidence and numbers and statistics and so on. But I think it also shows us that we probably need to have a little bit more data, because if we look at the studies published on women in uh, African family businesses, there's not so much about it. So probably there's a lot to be done in the next years. Yeah. So that's one way of how we could get more uh, female uh, leaders empowered in family businesses. Shayla and Afsani, do you have any additional thoughts on what conversations we need to get um, involved in or what measures we need to take to actually um, help nurturing future female leaders? I do. I, I do have some thoughts. So, so the types of transactions we do, we generally back founders or family businesses. I come from a family business background myself. My shareholders come from a family business background. And I think one of the observations we have, so when we meet businesses with whom we're going to partner, a big part of the conversations we have around whether they want to take our capital, what we can add to their business is succession planning and, and, you know, what they want to get out of, their business, is it income, is it, is it security, is it capital appreciation? Do they wanna be involved in management? Do they not wanna be involved in management? I think a couple things we've learned in a couple of ways in which I think we have been helpful as sort of potential investors and actual investors is helping them think through a corporate governance framework. So many of the businesses in which we've invested, even though there are a lot, you know, we invest in market leading healthcare businesses. So number one, number two, number three market share businesses. Surprisingly, like almost all of them have never really had a board meeting. They never had a formal budgeting process. They didn't, they don't have a formal organizational structure of how their business works. And naturally, and this is not the case in my family. You know, I'm one of three daughters and we are all very vocal. Um, and and my, my 
father's from a family of 13 siblings and it was actually my grandmother who run the, ran the family logistics business in Tanzania but generally we find women tend to be less vocal and less outspoken and tend to be come across as less confident so to Titi's point it may come across that they are not excited about or willing to be a large part of the business going forward. But I think having delved a bit deeper, things like having a family constitution, um, which is something actually the Harvard Business School teaches a whole course on that, right? Having um, like a framework for actually intergenerational wealth transfer, what does that mean? And then going to the next generation of the family and saying, okay, there's these five pillars. You know, one of them is financial growth. Another one is ESG. Another one is you know, family philanthropy, another one is innovation. And giving those as options to the next generation. Maybe women, maybe the daughters who tend to feel less confident that, okay, I don't necessarily want to run the business myself and I'm not as financially savvy and maybe I want a bit more flexibility because I might have children it is overwhelming to just say, do you want to be part of the family business going, for, going forward? It's less overwhelming to say, do you want to run marketing and corporate philanthropy? Do you want to run sort of the tech innovation group within our business? That is something very tangible and something that we have found is a really good way to engage the next generation, not, not necessarily just the women, like a lot of you know, everyone who works with me is a millennial, right? And, and people very much value the rest of their life and, and being able to sort of be excited about a specific mission or passion or something that is, is, is tangible, but within a box tends to help mm -hmm. us on these succession planning conversations. And it we tend to find that that, that tends to be something that the women, it, it makes them feel empowered and less overwhelmed. Um, in general, and that's a huge, that I agree that sounds, feels a bit like a stereotype, but that is at least in our experience, when you have a family constitution, you have a very sort of firm governance framework, you actually, the power of bringing in independent board members outside the family, where you're not tussling with your dad on every decision and you have an actual board that has, you know, an audit committee and a new business committee, that we tend to find that those are the types of environments that, that help you know, women find their place and actually feel they have more, more of a like sustainable voice. That's one of the, and we've, you know, I have six, seven examples that I can think of that we found that as a sort of a powerful, powerful way in which to, to, to kind of engage the whole next generation. That is actually um, a very interesting thought because Titi said before we need more transparency and evidence for the older generation to actually accept that the female um, kids might also be very good successors. But you're actually looking at that from the from a different perspective now and say, okay, we even need more transparency and maybe more structure also for the kids so that especially the daughters see their position. And what you talked about family constitution and also about um, family governance structures in general might be something that really help um, the, the daughters to find their own position in the family business, because then they can also think from early on about where they might see themselves and they might have a much clearer route to um, succession as compared to a case where everything is just and, very and transparent. And also ownership, right? Because there is a taboo, you know, in, in my culture, in my parents' generation, like women generally 
didn't inherit. It was just a cultural thing, mm. right? It, in our in our faith, there's an interpretation that the men inherit and the women mm. inherit less because mm. they women just take care of themselves, but the men have to take care of their family, right? So, so that is a big cultural thing to get over. And if you have something like a family constitution, like an organized shareholding through trusts of the family that actually as a daughter, you will inherit as much as your brother. Yeah. That also is a powerful way to motivate yourself, but also a powerful way to focus the older generation that, okay, if my daughter is going to inherit and she's going to be involved in this area of the business, that also requires attention and focus and validity. Like it's, it sounds archaic, but you know, even from my own family, I, I, I've sort of seen those conversations play out and it is a very, it is a very difficult, very cultural thing and, and sensitive thing to get over. But again, bringing in independent help, bringing in independent board members, bringing in a framework to make these decisions where it's again, not just the family themselves bringing in great advisors. I think we have found that to be a successful way to at least catalyze the conversation. Good. Okay, perfect. So, um, I mean, cultural norms are something that is very, very difficult to get disrupted. And I mean, many scholars, practitioners, advisors all around the world have dealt with this question, how to break cultural norms and overcome them. So um, structures, frameworks, and independent outsiders might actually be one way to challenge them and overcome them. Thank you. So Sheila, do you do you agree with that, or do you have any other thoughts on what measures you would like to suggest to to overcome those issues? Um, yes, yeah, I think all great points that have been raised uh, so far. I think there's one piece about obviously family built businesses have a very emotional aspect, right? And I think um, especially when the the family is thinking about transition succession, um, it's an important topic. And I think one of the cultural things that Afsani, I can expand on that that she was talking about is also we see the idea that women marry into the man's family and the idea that the man carries the name forward, right? And so um, even if you find, in our, at least in my experience in East Africa, we do still have, and some com communities are more conservative than others. But if I look at the sort of businesses that, um, for example, we had to work on with turnaround situations, there is one, the assumption that whether male or female, that your children are interested in your business, right? And so this idea of professionalizing, getting external help, because um, businesses that have survived generations in other countries don't necessarily mean that they have a family member every generation. But if you set up a structure such that from the governance perspective and from sort of the board perspective, of course, the family has a say, the idea of actually introducing um, external partners can be very useful. I'm, I'm sure, you know, it, sometimes the biggest challenge we have is this idea of raising actually external equity. A lot of families struggle with that because the idea that they'll give away any type of control to somebody else who's not a family member can be a very difficult conversation to have. And you'll find that a business that is already debt overburdened still wants to raise more debt just because they don't want to give away the ownership, right? And, um, you know, there's this idea of being, do you want to be a billionaire? Do you want to be king? You know, you own 100% of a very small enterprise or you could own 1% of a very large enterprise. So that thinking and sensitization is something that will take time. I think what helps is that if the family has been open enough to involve the next generation who has been exposed and um, has, has a different way of thinking, these ideas do come up. And so managing the disappointment that might 
come with, I actually don't want to be involved or to inherit your business. And I don't want to run it from a management perspective. However, I would like to be involved at sort of the governance level is something that the first generation is to get comfortable with. Because there's always an assumption that somebody in the family will take over the business. And sometimes it's like a fourth hand. You never have a real um, discussion about it. There's no family constitution, as Afsani said. And so what happens is that then you end up in a situation where, okay, you have somebody, um, the, the grandfather of the business at 70, 80 years, maybe the child is running it at 50 years and it's failing. And now you need a turnaround situation. So I think the openness to external help and to, to understanding that not every child might be interested in the business and maybe no child will be interested in the business and that's okay. But how do you go the firm to survive beyond you as the individual. So the idea that the entrepreneur should step away and say, now this is bigger than myself. And this is something that can be taken on, whether through family support or externally, is something that needs to be promoted. I think um, to Titi's earlier point about women managing complex, uh, being able to understand and manage complex situations better. And somebody I think has raised it in the chat. I think one of the things they say that we're better at doing is risk management. What the pandemic has brought up is, you know, it, it was a difficult situation. It's a, dis, a situation that needed more risk management skills than maybe risk loving or um, more aggressive skills. And so in that situation, in any institution, as it goes through phases, those are functions that are very important. And those can be control functions. There's different ways to think about how you involve women, whether they are part of the business or whether they're external, you know, corporate women or external professional women that you can bring in. So I think even for us, like um, when we were starting out with NISC and we're two women and one guy, sometimes we walk into offices with, you know, men that are much older than us and getting them to take us seriously for what we were presenting was a difficult thing because the perception that, a, that you know, women, women in finance is still like, there's still very few numbers, particularly also in, in the East African market. But second of all, the idea that you have these young females um, in a corporate finance institution was also something I had to get over. But again, uh, to Titi's earlier point, if you can demonstrate results, people will warm up to it. And I think if you can, sometimes it's, it's, it's a longer journey. You figure out what conversations need to be had earlier and what need to be had after you've done some trials and some testing and you've demonstrated that actually it's not so bad if, if the, the most competent person in your family is your last born daughter and you didn't, take a, you didn't even give her a second thought because of this idea of legacy, this idea of marrying into um, a family and daughters going somewhere else versus sons being the ones that will carry the legacy forward. So that's something we've seen in, in, uh, in communities here in, in East Africa, some communities more than others. Um, but I think now, now um, if we can focus on results and if, if a family is open enough to hire an external party to help them think through these things, um, there's a family we've worked with that I'm so glad to see. We started working with them in 2016 and now in 2021, you know, we finally see the two daughters participating. When we started on day one, he only has daughters too, so he has no choice. But on day one, they were nowhere seen in the picture. So, and actually their contributions, like one of them I think really wants to be a part of the story. And it's so helpful because the other thing you have to think about is for us, the first generations, there's a lot of first generation businessmen that didn't get a, a formal education or their education stopped at high school um, or primary school. And so even the idea of selling um, or encouraging them to take external capital 
or to professionalize is very difficult. But when you have an intermediary who is somebody in their inner circle that can promote that message and can kind of hold their hand and say it's actually okay, it's it's very helpful. And I think overall, it will help in the continuation and the thriving of African family firms. Because I think the biggest issue we have is that a firm or a business and a, you know, categorize them separate, like an SME or, or a bigger firm stops with the generation that started it. And that's the most unfortunate piece. Okay. So it seems we all agree that we need more women in um, African family business. And this will be good for the family businesses as well as the economy and probably the continent. Um, I think we have already um, created great advices, what family firms can do, what the, the, the seniors need to do. But I would like to um, actually tackle the discussion from a different perspective now too. So very often it is also said that the, um, the young women uh, don't wanna go into that position. They might be shy to take on the responsibility. They might actually, they might see different career paths or maybe even no career path at all. And I think, I think it was Afsani who already uh, said that, yes, some um, governance structures might already help those young women because it shows them a clear uh, path forward. However, I would like you to comment a little bit what um, the women or maybe the society also, so everybody basically outside the family firm could do to encourage women to take on such a position and to take on such responsibility. Um, yeah, I, I have some thoughts on that because it's 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 a broader problem even beyond just family businesses. It's um it's the fact that as as a world, you know, the world just doesn't have as many female leaders as we do male leaders, right? So um I honestly think I I always use this because this is literally one of the things that blew my mind the most. I remember watching an interview of little girls where uh, they were asking them, what do you want to be when you grow up, right? And there was this little girl, they asked her, what is your favorite class in school? And she talked and talked about how she loved math. And she just was really good at math. Turns out she was like, you know, very, very STEMI, right? Um, and then they said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she said she wanted to be a hairdresser, right? Why did she want to be a hairdresser? Because her mom is a hairdresser. Her aunt is a hairdresser. People, the women that she saw around her were hairdressers. This is a girl growing up in a, a more low income area, right? The key point at the end of the day is children do not decide what they want to be based on what they feel like they're good at. They decide based on what they see, the people that they admire, what those people are, right? So it's back to this whole thing around demonstration and just showing showing something, is that there's a very big role to be done just by showcasing more women leaders, right? I mean, you'd be surprised the number of kids who are gonna now say, okay, I want to be vice president just because Kamala Harris is now vice president. That changes things significantly. That makes it open to you, right? So, you know, uh, what AFF is doing here, what uh, AWB is doing, just showcasing female leadership is very, very important, right? You have to remember we live in a world where we mostly showcase women in, uh, you know, we all know it's, you know, the artist, the, it's all about beauty. It's all, oh, my goodness, the other day I was 
my daughter, sorry, it's just another person. My daughter was watching YouTube videos and the number of things that just come to her, it's all about just, you should be a princess. You should get married. She's four. And YouTube is showing her little videos of little girls pretending to get married. Little boys don't wake up, you know, thinking, oh, my life is to get married, right? Um, and it's, it's a big societal problem. In other words, we have to start thinking differently. I, I spent a long time trying to find, find a train set that was made in a way that would appeal to little girls. It took me forever to find that, right? So of course I can find bright pink dolls everywhere and stuff that pushes our daughters to only think about certain things, right? So it's a big problem. It's, it's one that we have to think about broadly um, and just kind of find a way to start having women think broadly about the way we can add value without changing what we like as women, right? Um, there's a computer um, engineer that I admire who talks about the fact that she got interested in computer engineering because she liked shopping websites. There's nothing wrong with the things that we like as women. You know, there's nothing wrong with the things that we like as women, but there are other ways to engage with those things, right? So imagine if they're more, uh, pink train sets versus only dolls and all this kind of stuff. Imagine if there are more toys that appeal to young women, right? Even young babies, um, as young as they are, you actually see differences in little boys and little girls with regards to what they pay attention to. The fact that little girls are more likely to spend more time looking in people's eyes. So yes, women, we do care about people. Right, so it means that if you want me to think about computer engineering, maybe not focus on the tech behind the robot, but tell me how the robot can help people do things that I care about, right? So it's a massive thing. It's a, one could go on and on about this topic, but definitely women leadership is really something that we really need to completely revamp how we, how we show things to all the way down to little girls. So uh, that would be my comment there. I, I, I couldn't I couldn't agree. Sorry, it, sorry to interrupt, <laughs> but I couldn't I couldn't agree more with that. I mean, I have two little girls, and and my husband sort of is a former aerospace engineer, right? So from a very young age, there's you know posters of space all over our kids' walls, and you know, but it was really really hot, you know. And it's funny, like I would go to a toy shop and I'd be in the space Lego section and automatically someone would come up to me and say, oh, how, how young are your boys? I'm like, they're not, <laughs> I have little girls. And it's, um, it's, I think, I, I think one thing to, what, and not to sort of sound Larry Summers-esque, but I think there is, there, there has to be an understanding without it being taboo that men and women are different and men and women learn differently, right? So one of the reasons that maybe there aren't as many women in sort of the engineering and the physics and the math um, disciplines is not that they're as smart, but the way in which women learn math and physics just from a physiological perspective is just different, right? So there's, I think, a study that men and women do really well if the problem or do the same if the problem is upright, but if you turn it on an angle, on average, women struggle with that. And so you need to just teach it in a slightly different way, but then women tend to be much more expressive and much more verbal. And, you know, so, so I think 
starting from a very young age, understanding that women are as capable but different and that yes, women generally, even at a very young age, may be very, very interested in space and rockets and science and math, but maybe interested for different reasons, right? So my daughter now really wants to be a nurse on a spaceship because she really wants to help people, but she really wants to go to space. And, and I think it's great, but mm -hmm. it is a very, un, it, it, even in sort of this day and age, there tend to be very different disciplines and toys and books for little boys and little girls. And it tends to, yeah, it, 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 there tends to be this huge focus. And I think a lot of it is cultural Mm -hmm. around, um, you know, for a woman, it's very important to have a family and have a husband and have a career. I never, with my little cousins, and I think my family is very progressive and a lot of my friends, you know, I sometimes, you know, I don't hear them talking to their sons about how important it is for them to find a good wife and have children, but yet that's still the topic of conversation, right? I remember my, my niece, my niece, my very younger cousin, um, is training to be a plastic surgeon. And I remember when she turned 30, her you know parents were beside herself because she didn't know how to cook Indian food and she would probably never find a husband, but was gonna be a plastic surgeon. And, and, and I just think there are still these very embedded, even in, even in sort of educated families, stereotypes around this kind of thing that even if they're not of overt, um, those sort of subliminal messages that, you know, you can't be a complete woman if you don't have a family or a husband, even if you don't have a fulfilling career, really has to try and, and shift quickly. Because um, I think it's still very pervasive. And sometimes I actually feel like it, it's, it's, it's getting worse for some reason. I just, I, I don't see that rhetoric changing much, if at all. So we really have a, a task for the entire society about how we raise kids and also what the expectations are. So um, just to, because we need to come to the, uh, to the end also of our um, discussion, there are two um, things that were, um, that were mentioned very, very often, but always only implicitly. So, um, and those two are actually the role of family offices and the role of ESG. And the question whether this might also help actually get more family and um, more female leaders into um, responsible positions. So Shayla, do you have any push perspective on um, those two aspects? Well, I think uh, building on the idea of representation, which I completely agree is, is super important. And I think there's been um, various economic studies that have shown the difference in sort of political outcomes, both in um, India and in Africa, when, when there's been quotas actually assigned for women and, and the perception of society in terms of what women can do, et cetera. So I think, well, the beauty of working with family officers, um, at least in my experience, and are focused on ESG, is there are certain requirements in terms of, you know, even for a workforce, like for example, um, certain firms might get more funding if they're in the agriculture space and they're employing more women or um, helping certain households that are living be below a certain income and those benefits are going directly to women. So I think um, in the traditional, well, maybe in the sort of, um, some of the financing models that we see both on private equity or VC that some, some are purely driven by bottom line and others that are able to either have a longer term view and um, can incorporate into the, the investment requirement, ESG requirements and sort of um, overall um, 
economic benefit or family benefit requirements in terms of depending on what the business is doing. I think overall, obviously, that will, will help elevate women more. Um, and, and it does tend to happen more with family of because a lot of family offices are looking for impact. The investment thesis has an element of impact and how impact is measured and, and how um, essentially businesses that they, they look at sort of cultivate an impact culture is quite important. And that often involves women and households and caring about economic outcomes, which will often again, bring the women back into the fold. So I think it's a, it's a, I think rethinking how investment is also done on the continent. And I think one of the big things we struggle with is the copy paste of certain investment models because they just don't work. I think um, businesses in this part of the world are also in a different phase. And so if you, if, if you know, firms or funds that come in with the perception that they're going to make outsized returns um, from businesses in the market, they're just some good businesses that need to be built and they're, and they're building um, just sort of economic fundamentals. And we're not yet in the phase where you'll have as many, you know, outliers kind of like what you see in the US with tech businesses, but the perception on how you invest and what you're looking for. The, I, I always struggle with, um, with the pricing in the market because the idea is that if you're coming to Africa, the risk perception is worse. And so the pricing should be significantly higher, but people operating the market have a very different risk perception. So Institutions like family offices that can actually work better within the local context, I think, or have more room to accommodate what the local context is and how to build um, family firms locally, I think uh, would do a lot, not just for the family firms, but also for the women involved in those firms. Thank you. That's, thank you for that perspective. So um, we're coming to an end now. And so I would just like to ask each of us to give a, a very brief concluding um, sentence on what you think um, should be the focus on um, nurturing female family business leaders in Africa in the next few years. So maybe Afsana, do you want to start? Um, okay, I would say that, you know, just bringing transparency and you know, making decisions results-driven, KPI-driven, mission-driven, I think will really help engage the next generation um, of family business leaders, particularly women, and you know, allow them to feel like it's more of a level playing field if they have a very clear sense of what their role could be, you know, how they will be measured, and what their eventual ownership stake in the business will be. I think that will will really give them confidence and motivation to want to participate in a more, on, on a more meaningful level. Thank you. Titi? Um, I completely agree with uh, what Afsane said. And I, I think actually that uh, family offices and you know, multifamily offices can be a force uh, for that, right? So in other words, we find generally that it can be very difficult for families to create those governance structures on their own without external assistance. Um, I think that what, you know, having external assistance does is it actually um, ensures that there's just an independent party who is not part of your family, who doesn't have, um, I mean, one of the things that I think we all know as being families as being part of families ourselves is, it's very difficult, I think, for people to detach from their familial roles when they're with each other, right? So um, if you're the, the younger sister, you kind of, at, 
even though you may be an executive yourself, uh, maybe you may defer to your older brother who used to like bully you when you were kids. Like either way, the point is having an external party some somewhat helps with some of those uh, kind of issues. Um, and it also helps to ensure that you know, people have independent information on just sort of uh, what works and what doesn't work, independent of the personalities within the family. I mean, there's a very interesting conversation going on on the side about how we raise boys. Um, and this is a very important point is that for family, families, um, for them to keep wealth, they've got to actually be thinking of the next generation and generation three, generation four, because the, the direction of that of the new generations is what determines how long this wealth will last. And they're actually scientifically backed things that you can do to, uh, to just sort of improve your odds. So, I mean, Kids, I mean, sons, for example, that grow, grow up with working mothers are scientifically proven to be uh, just sort of, you know, maybe more helpful husbands, for example. Um, it doesn't affect their, um, it doesn't affect their income, but it makes them just sort of more understanding of women and so on. Whereas for girls, the girls are much more likely to be leaders, right? So imagine if you're able to show the evidence, you know, a lot of women, especially those of us that work a lot, struggle with this whole thing of, oh, am I doing right by my children and so on. But imagine if you go show them the data, if you show them that, especially for you who have daughters, it is actually a benefit to your daughters for them to see you in positions of um, some influence and some leadership, because it makes them more likely to be in positions of leadership. And these are things that a family office can ensure uh, becomes part of its next gen program. You know, just sort of giving that information out, creating mentorship opportunities, internship opportunities for the next gen and so on and so forth. So I definitely honestly think that um, we can't necessarily expect families to do all of this stuff by themselves, to do the governance by themselves, create the transparency by themselves. And it may become, it may be important for us to start to think about the role of family offices on the African continent and how they can be agents of this governance that we're talking about. So I would actually think that that should be a big area of focus for us over the next decade or two. Super. Thank you. Shayla, do you want to have the concluding sentence? Sure. I mean, I think um, uh, um, the chat on the side has been very interesting. I do think this idea, we didn't get to this point of, of allyship. And I think most of the causes that have had the most progress in the world often have to bring on allies. And those allies are not from the group that you know you're trying to progress and i think the interesting part is that as women we take up we've traditionally taken up the largest load of um sort of the housework and the household and raising children and yet we're the ones who raise the boys that then go on to do this thing so it's very interesting and uh, and i think that idea of allyship is super important and what examples we set so for example yeah someone said i have a son my son is now in um kindergarten like he's a two-year-old and he's going to play school and he loves to play in the kitchen I you know one of the comments I was getting is that boys like let's try and get him engaged in something else I'm like no if he likes to be in the kitchen that's fine so that example and actually just the idea of how we as mothers raise boys and girls to have um, equal opportunity to to participate in similar just simple things like participating in similar tasks in the household I think is important yeah. but at the end of the day men are 50 percent so we have to get them on board with with this whole cause and i think 
it starts from home because it starts from the mothers who are predominantly the caregivers, uh, kind of making sure that we're not perpetuating stereotypes and we're actually giving equal and fair opportunities to any of our children, whether male or female. Thank you. Wow, that were powerful words. I thank you very much. I think we could have just continued going on discussing uh, for the next couple of hours. But I think our time is unfortunately running out. So I thank you so much for your participation and for everything. And thank you again. And um, I'm looking forward to continuing those discussions. Thank you. It's an thank absolute you. pleasure. Yeah. Thank Thanks you. for having us. Bye. Bye. Bye.